Hi, I'm Morvin Westfield, and you're listening to Vampires, Witches, and Geeks, a podcast about vampires, modern witches, and geeky stuff. This is episode 23, Interview with Dorothy Morrison, author and witch. This episode was originally recorded on August 23, 2009. Yes, you heard that date correctly. My apologies for the delay. Dorothy Morrison is the author of over a dozen nonfiction books on paganism and Wicca, including Everyday Magic, The Craft, a Witch's Book of Shadows, Magical Needlework, and Utterly Wicked. She co-wrote Dancing the Goddess Incarnate with Kristen Madden and is the creator of the Whimsical Tarot. Today we talk to Dorothy about storytelling, her first novel, and the woes and wackiness of book touring. A native Texan, Dorothy lives in Virginia with her husband. Okay, today's episode, we have a really wonderful person. Um, I met her at a book signing event, and she's just the nicest person you'd ever want to meet, and one of the hardest working writers I know. Welcome, Dorothy Morrison. Thank you so much. You're so sweet. Oh, <laughs> it's all true. It's all true. I'm on your website now, which of course is www.dorothymorrison.com. I'm looking at your tour schedule and you've been traveling. Let's see, March, you had a slack month, only one trip. Just one. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, now you live in which state? I'm in Virginia now. In April, you, you sort of stayed close to home, up to Maryland, with a little detour to Oklahoma. And then June, you were in Texas. And then July, you were sort of close to home around Virginia and Kentucky in August. But now, September, you're going to come up to Pennsylvania, and October, up to the Northeast. That's it. I sure am. And I'm really looking forward to that. You know, it's it's really funny. They, they always say that you're never a prophet in your own land. <laughs> and and when I lived in Maine, I couldn't get a gig anywhere. <laughs> and now that I'm way down south in Virginia, I get phone calls all the time from folks in New England saying, when are you coming? <laughs> Isn't that funny? Now, for readers who don't know who you are, when you start out writing about witchcraft and Wicca, you start writing nonfiction books first. Is that right? Yes. You know, and I I always found that it was easier to write what I know. You know, I can write anything, but I actually like to write from the heart, and I like to write from personal experience. There, there are a lot of authors that I call research authors, mm-hmm. and they'll contract for a book, and then they'll do the, the research and they'll write it. But, you know, I like to write about things that I've actually experienced, and you know, when when I first started out, someone said, oh, my God, nonfiction books are so boring. <sighs> and I thought, okay, yeah. You know, I've read some, some academic stuff that that uh, bored me, and I had to just struggle through. And so I decided that I would um, use conversational time. Mm-hmm. And and that, that worked really, really well. Of course... Um, I had to fight with my first editors because I did not follow the Chicago Manual of Style. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I explained to her if I did, nobody would read that stuff. Yes. Well, you know, it's funny. When I was um, taking some college courses, one of the best insomnia uh, remedies I ever found was my economics textbook. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah absolutely. So, 
So anyway, you know, that, that worked out really, really well. But I always wanted to write fiction because I like to tell stories. Mm-hmm. And so I finally did write a novel, which was released uh, in fall last year. And that was quite an experience. Um, but it was different. It wasn't just a matter of telling a story. So I have to tell you, I have a great deal of admiration for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because writing fiction and writing nonfiction are are two entirely different animals. Oh, isn't it, though? I mean, in nonfiction, you don't have to worry about character development or plot arc or any of that. No, and you know, but that wasn't my hardest thing. It was the timing. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. You know, timing with dialogue has to be perfect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always felt like my dialogue was rather stilted. And so I have a very dear friend named M.R. Sellers, who is also an author, and, and I think you know him as well. Oh, yes, yes. Yes, he's a fabulous author. And so I sent him a couple of pages, and I said, you know, read this over and see if you think this sounds stilted. And he emailed me back, and he said, no, Dorothy, this sounds fine. He said, you know, you know you're just too, too concerned about this. Just write the story. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I did, except that I discovered that once you develop char- characters, they have a life of their own. Yes. You know, there are some writers who say that people who say their characters took over the story just don't have their their writing under control. But I think that probably you coming from a magical position and talking about bringing things in, into manifestation, wouldn't you say that you actually bring them to life almost literally? Well, I, I think so. Um, I didn't realize that at, at the time. But you know, the, um, my, my novel, Lucinda's Web, all started because of a cemetery plot that I lived close to. I had moved into an old house, and I was like two doors down from the city cemetery. And there was a particular gravestone that was very peculiar in its shape mm-hmm. and its inscription. And so I began to take care of that plot. You know, I, I tried to research the, the person who was buried there, so on and so forth, and it just haunted me. And all of a sudden, I realized that the person there wanted their story told. Oh. And so, this started out dur- during the time that I was writing nonfiction books, and, and I wrote a couple of chapters. And then, I got busy doing other things, and that book sat on the back burner for 10 years. Wow. And in the middle of the night one night, I woke up and I thought, oh, my God, what a great first paragraph for a chapter after all those years. It just came. It was time. Yeah. And, and so I scribbled in the dark and thought, you know, if I can read this when I wake up, this was a good idea. And if I can't, it wasn't. And I'll forget about it. But in the morning, I could. That, that in itself, having been someone who tried to write down my dreams, yeah, that means something if you can read it the next morning. Oh, yeah, when you're scribbling in the dark. Yeah. Because you know, I was too lazy to get up and go downstairs and, and get to the computer. And so I began to, to write that. I put everything else on hold and began to write it. And it originally had started out as a time switch novel from one century you know, into the next, back, you know, back and forth. Mm-hmm. And finally... I began to write the, the present-day stuff. But the biggest problem I had was one of my characters did take over the storyline. He, um, my, my hero committed a murder. Uh-huh. And I'm writing this, and I'm going, oh, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. No, 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 no. We, you know, we can't do that. And, and I fought with it. And finally I thought, you know what? Just write the story. See what happens. And, you know, in a couple of chapters it fixed itself. Oh. 
And so then I learned something valuable. When the when the character takes over the story, you let them take care of you just let them do it. Right. Yep. And it makes it easy. Yes. Yes. Now, so so until I finished it, I didn't even know how it was gonna end. And that's exciting. You know, I've I've started I think it was the second book when I started, I didn't know where it was going to end. I knew sort of about the middle. And all of a sudden, a plot comes out, and all of a sudden, you can see where it's going, and it becomes so exciting at that point. And I know some people say that they outline their books to the teeth. Well, I started with an outline, and I had every intention of, far, of following it, yeah. Well, do, do you find, because you, you, you've written a series mm -hmm. using the, the same characters, right? do you find that your characters go on vacation? In what sense? This is interesting. Well, well um, when, when you decide that it's time for the, the, the next book in the series, mm -hmm. has, has it ever happened that your characters just didn't want to cooperate? Oh, no. I, I must say mine were, were very interested in cooperating, um, but things kept happening where... I would think, okay, the story's going to go in this direction. I'd start writing, and I'd get excited, and I'd follow it through and realize, oh, no, it can't go that way because that would contradict blah, blah, blah. So they've taken me on wild goose chases, but I can't say they've ever gone on vacation on me. Well, you know, mine, mine did for, for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so finally, I, uh, I had to set up my muses altar again mm -hmm. <laughs> and and I begged and I pl pled and I gave my my muses rum ah and told them to come back from waxing their legs or wherever they, they were <laughs> <laughs> and get busy and by god they they did well that's interesting that brings me into another topic one of your books and I'm looking utterly wicked. Now, you have a refreshing, different approach to witchcraft. There, For people who aren't too familiar with the modern witchcraft scene, as it exists in North America now, I can't speak for the world, but it took a decided turn to the completely religious, to the point where there are some people who are just basically practicing a very strong religious path and they pray for things instead of working spells. Now you see, have followed a different path where not only does one bribe the gods, but one actually even threatens them. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is that in no, no matter which religion you follow, if you, were fo if you follow any, mm -hmm. you one of the common truths is that God lives within you. Right. Okay. Well, technically, if God lives within you, you are the gods and they are you. Mm -hmm. So you are one and the same. Right. So threatening the gods will not make lightning strike you. Uh-huh. But it will poke your higher power into action. Right. Okay. Sort of like the the psychological game where you say to yourself, "Okay, if I write five hundred more words, I can go out and have that ice cream." Exactly. And conversely, if I don't write those five hundred words, I can't watch True Blood tonight. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, okay, that's an interesting take on it. Uh, you know, going back to the witchcraft has become more of a spiritual path than a magical practice. Right. Um, 
you know, I I was appalled to to see that that happen. And I know that some of your listeners are going to go, "What the hell is she talking about? <laughs> Why would she be appalled?" Um, you, you know, I'm I'm from the the old school mm-hmm. where magic was a byproduct of Wicca. It was a byproduct of the craft. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like prayer being a byproduct of Christianity. Mm-hmm. If the two don't dance together, one partner falls flat on its face. Ah. So they have to go together. And there for a while, it seemed that teachers of the craft were so concerned about newcomers c- coming into it simply for the magical practice mm-hmm. that they quit teaching magic. And this caused a big bunch of problems. Because it's kind of like telling teenagers not to have sex. Right. They're gonna. Yes, yes. And so you may as well teach them properly mm-hmm. and appropri- in how to behave appropriately because otherwise you're going to have trouble on your hands. Mm-hmm. And it was the same with magic. You know, they would tell their students, don't you practice magic, don't you cast a spell. Well, you know, they were going to do it anyway. And then they created problems they didn't know how to fix. In in my books, I have tried to make magic easy mm-hmm. and give my readers straight answers about how to do it, you know, when to do it, when not to do it, you know, that that sort of thing. Right. And just so readers don't think you're all practice and, and no, um, no spirituality, I'm looking at your bibliography on your website, and you have a book called Dancing the Goddess Incarnate. Yes. Yeah, yes, I do. Which now has recently become out of print. Oh. Yes. Um, I, I wrote that, that book with Kristen Madden, and I thought it was a wonderful book, and I still do. Uh, it uh, showcases nine goddesses, three maidens, three mothers, three crones, mm-hmm. and each of them has a specific dance that helps you with your life, and you learn lessons from, from the dance. And the premise is, if you dance with each goddess equally, your life balances out. Ah. And, and there's some very, very fun fun dances in there. Um, Tiziana does the hokey pokey. Really? <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh. Um, yeah. Um, Jared one does the Macarena. Oh, my goodness. Anyone? Bacotti mm-hmm. does the Charleston. <laughs> Charleston. Oh. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And, 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 and so, you know, Kristen and I really did do, you know, have fun with this. And, and did some research uh, on this to see which dances would, would be appropriate. And they're kind of shockers to people who, who, who get the book. But once they, they, they read the chapter, they understand exactly why which goddess does which dance and where that helps you. Mm-hmm. Now, is there any chance that this book will be reissued or come out in um, electronic form or anything? Or? You know, it's, it's quite possible. We are going to um, pitch it to another publisher and, and, and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And, and I really hope it does. I would like to see this particular book come out with a CD of the music because we have, we've actually done uh, seminars where we've taken people through the dances mm-hmm. with the music, and it, and it is just wonderful. Mm-hmm. The- so, 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 yeah, I'm, I, I would like to see that happen. You know, there, there are a lot of books that um, I think Christopher Penzak's books have meditation CDs, you know, with them. Right. And, and, and I would like to see a music CD come out with that. Speaking of different projects, now, let's see, you've got, what was it, the, the um, little items you were selling? Now, recently you're selling ultra cloths, which is an interesting story. 
Well, yes. I was I was trying to clean up my office and I was going through my fabric stash. You know, I like to sew and I like to quilt. And so I have this big fabric stash and I thought, oh, you know, I'll make some altar cloths and I'll I'll do uh, you know, a limited edition series, make a hundred cloths over a period of years. Each one will be different, they'll be signed and numbered, and that will be great. And, but I wasn't quite ready to put them up on my website yet. And I was only gonna make two or three at a time. Mm-hmm. And, and just, you know, saw, saw what was. And so I took photographs of them and I put them on Facebook. And now I have all sorts of orders and they're not even up on the website yet. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I guess that means you need to start. So, and, you know, how are you going to sew? I mean, I'm looking at your schedule here. Um. <laughs> well, believe it or not, before you called, I was pinning pieces together frantically. Ah. <laughs> and I will probably be up at 5 o'clock in the morning sewing. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so this is going to be a sewing week. Yes. I'm thinking back to, wasn't there in like the ancient witch lore something about witches sewing in spells or something? I've got this image in my mind of, you know, the stereotypical witch character sewing something up. Um, yes. You, well, well, to start with, you know, a lot of them did, you know, sewed puppets. Oh, right, right. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of modern magical practitioners will do things like um, sew up a, a pinch of dirt from the home or lint mm-hmm. or even a dust bunny in, in their kids' clothes to, to bring them safely back home. Oh, that's an interesting spell. Yeah. Um, so, you know, or, you know, or some little something from, you know, from the house, some tiny thing, you know, sewed up in their clothes. Um, well, in, in the midst of Avalon, you know, there, there were spells worked with, with that tapestry. Uh-huh. Right. And, and, um, there is, uh, gosh, there's a novel that, that I mentioned in Utterly Wicked, and I cannot remember, I can either remember the, the novelist's name or the name of the novel, but it also surrounded a bridal quilt that, a slave had made for her master's bride-to-be, mm-hmm. and she was in love with, with with her master, and there was graveyard dirt in with the batting. Ah. And and each each little block, there, there was a curse sewn in. Oh, no. Yes. So, so, so you know, it, it, is, it is an ancient practice. It's a common practice. Mm-hmm. Now, in Lucinda's Web, which I loved, especially, it really kept me going at the end, wasn't there also something in there about um, a ghost of a slave? Am I remembering correctly? Yes. Yes, as a matter of fact, there, there, there was. Who was also in love with her master. That caused a, uh, a big bunch of, of trouble for people in the present day. She... Um, she, she was in love with him, and so she put a love spell on him. Uh. One of the other slaves realized what, what she'd done and realized that she was likely to have endangered the, the lives of all the other slaves on the property by doing such, put a spell on, on the master and his wife to keep them together. And so what happens in Lucinda's Web is both these spells travel through time and affect the, the same souls in their new bodies. So, so it's a reincarnative experience. And one of the spells backfires, and the former lovers come back as twins. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's love, but not exactly the kind of love you'd like. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, whole, the whole problem 
with, um, with, with, with the storyline is that one of the main characters needs to unravel the magic without destroying the lives of everybody around her. So, so yes, that, that was quite, quite interesting. And I actually did do a lot of research on, on that. I'm kind of a civil law buff. And um, I, uh, I grew up in, in a family who had domestic help. And my dad had uh, horses and cattle. And so he had help out in, you know, in the pastures and at the barn. And most of these people were, were black. And so black folks, you know, practically raised me. And um, one of the, um, the, the things that was, I had a quandary when I wrote this book was because I wrote some of this in slave dialect. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, oh, Dorothy, you're going to get in all kinds of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Folks aren't going to like that. But, you know, I, I, I went back to that beautiful m- melody of, of their voices when I was a child. Yes. And it is a beautiful, beautiful, um, it's, it's, it's like a symphony. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, I really didn't take any flack over that. But. Back back to the slave thing. See, see, you're going to hate talking to me because I get off track. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. It's interesting tracks. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, you know, the, the slave trade, you know, folks think that, that slaves just came from everywhere and there were auction blocks everywhere, but that wasn't exactly so. And when I wrote Lucinda's Web, I had to figure out how, to get, how the slaves would come from Missouri or how they would get to Missouri because this particular story takes place in Missouri. And so they would have to come up the, the Mississippi River. And I had originally wanted to use Gullah Magic from the Carolinas in that. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And then I realized I couldn't do that because there was no direct slave route. So the slaves would have to come from Louisiana, you know, and, and, uh, up the river. And they would have to be secondhand slaves. And what a lot of people don't realize is most slaves were secondhand. They... um were bought and then sold again and shipped off elsewhere. So that made them secondhand. And all the slaves in Missouri were secondhand slaves. Now, why is that? Just because of the geographical location or? Yeah. Yeah. Because when the the ships came in, they had to be able to dock um, or anchor, you know, where the water was deep enough to do that. Right. And so you didn't have any any big ships coming like up the Mississippi River, it would all have to be seawater. So it would have to be the Gulf. Mm-hmm. And then smaller boats up the Mississippi River. And there was an awful lot of slave trade up the Mississippi River, but it was in small numbers. It wasn't like in big ships. You know, and, and they were usually bought at the, at the Gulf of Mexico or, or at some sea mm-hmm. area, some seaport, and then shipped on with their, their new owners. So anyway, there, there was some, some research involved in that and, you know, a few headaches that I had to, to figure out because it was a fun book to write. That wraps it up for this episode. You can find the show notes at www.vampireswitchesandgeeks.com. Be sure to look for the next episode, part two of my interview with witch and writer Dorothy Morrison. For more information on Dorothy and her varied projects, visit her website at www.dorothymorrison.com. Morrison has two R's and one S. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to hearing from you. You can leave comments at www.
www.vampireswitchesandgeeks.com or at my main website www.morvinwestfield.com Thanks for listening. This podcast is copyright 2010 Morvin Westfield but it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. Please see www.vampireswitchesandgeeks.com for details.